Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're going to talk about one of my absolute all-time favorite topics, and that is creating a high-performance team and a high-performance culture as well. I'm always looking for cases, examples, people who've done it, and where we get to talk about what does it really take to make a high-performance team. And one of my pet peeves is everybody says they want it, but often don't appreciate all the details it takes to actually create that high-performance dynamic. So today, we're going to look at the practices of winning Formula One racing teams. Now, if you're not a fan, stay tuned. And even if you know nothing about Formula One or don't care about racing at all, I think you're going to still find that the insights are hugely applicable. And I think you'll enjoy it along the way. Um, I can promise you that what you think about Formula One right now probably isn't how it works unless you're a big fan of the sport already. So my guest today is Mark Gallagher, and Mark has held several senior roles in the high-performance environment of Formula One motor racing for over 30 years. He's a Formula One analyst for international media, and he's a founder of a sports consulting business called Performance Insights Limited. Now, Mark's career in Formula One um, included more than a decade on the management board of the very successful Jordan Grand Prix team. He also ran the world-famous Cosworth engine business, and he established the commercial arm of Red Bull Racing, and that group went on to become four-time world champions. So you can say he's been around this and around high-performance teams and high-performance drivers for quite a while. He's worked with a number of sports-leading drivers, including several world-class champions, I won't embarrass myself with not being able to pronounce their names. And I will say, Mark, as always, like many of my guests, has also written a book, his second book, called The Business of Winning, Strategic Success from Formula One Track to the Boardroom. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Wanda, and great to be able to share a few insights on the winning performance in Formula One. I'm excited about it. Now, I have to confess, I have a little bit of information about Formula One, a tiny little bit of information, but I am not a deep, deep, deep follower. I know all the ins and outs, but I have to tell you, I know just enough to know that it's a really interesting process of what happens behind the scenes to put a driver out on a racetrack and win. So I think it's going to surprise everybody. But for those who don't know much about the sport, Kind of start with some basics about how this sport actually functions. Okay, so the Formula One World Championship is a form of auto racing, actually began in 1950. So this year we are celebrating 70 years of this Formula One World Championship. And what makes Formula One unique uh, in top-level motorsport is that 
you have to design and manufacture the vehicle that you race as a team. So, you, in other words, you have to create the IP that you compete with. And so, unlike, uh, for example, in the Indy 500 race or even NASCAR, where you can you can share components and, and share designs across teams, in Formula One, every team has to create the product that it races. And the most famous team in Formula One, the only team to have competed in all 70 years is Ferrari. And if you want to know why Ferrari is such a big global brand uh, these days, Formula One has a lot to answer for because really Ferrari used Formula One as its principal form uh, of uh, global marketing. So that's the first thing that sets Formula One aside. You have to design and manufacture the product. And really, uh, I wonder what that means is that a Formula One race team is a technology company. We are in the business of designing and manufacturing and bringing to market a great big piece of technology. It happens to be a Formula One race car, but it means that we have to have the infrastructure and the capability to create amazing high-end products. So typically, a competitive Formula One team will employ about a thousand full-time staff, which I know sounds like a crazy number of people to put two race cars on the grid around the world every other Sunday. But in reality, behind the scenes, we're just a prototype manufacturing business and we need that kind of scale as an operation in order to meet the challenge that Formula One is. Okay. All right. Now, if you don't know anything about the sport, I think most people have the perception of you manufacture the car, you put it out on the racetrack, it runs around a bunch of times, and then it comes home. But that isn't how it actually happens. So kind of give me a little more details on the work that happens on the racetrack, the number of times you replace the tires, for example, the parts that you might switch out, any of that. So typically in a, in a Formula One World Championship season, we have 22 events around the globe, 22 Formula One events, and they are from the United States to China, from the UK to Monte Carlo, 22 different countries. And in each of the countries in which we go to a Grand Prix, our cars are competing against you know, red-hot competition, and we effectively have to develop our product race by race. So not only do we produce a high-technology product, but we then have to refine that and develop it um, over time. Um, The business model of Formula One, uh, as you have touched upon, has so much interest, I think, for the business community, because first of all, I know from first-hand experience, even race car fans think that Formula One teams survive on sponsorship, you know, commercial sponsorship. In reality, our business model has changed enormously. So although we are racing on these tracks around the world every other Sunday, what we're selling is quite different. So sponsorship still has a role to play, but effectively we're selling technology, we're selling uh, entertainment to race fans around the world. So media rights are extremely important in terms of how the sport uh, is channeled to audiences around the world. And there are a number of other streams, revenue streams coming into us. So for us, it's not about 22 races. It's about a 365-day-of-the-year technology business, which is multiple revenue streams. And then for these cars that we are racing, it's all about constantly refining and upgrading the technology to make sure, hopefully, we stay ahead of the competition. So that creates, I mean, if you're doing this 22 countries, you're shipping the teams that are going to have to be there, the cars, the parts, the equipment you need to modify them I mean, and all of that. 
the pace must be incredible and there must be this strong sense of urgency of how do we get that tiny little bit of edge that's going to make a difference in seconds to winning versus not winning. Yeah, you know, Wanda, it's so uh, amusing. People still ask me, what do you guys do during the wintertime? Like, uh, you know, we go home from the last... We go home and put our feet up. Uh, the winter time is the busy, busiest time. When I talk about winter time, I'm talking about the Northern Hemisphere winter time. So we we typically have six months to produce a, a brand new Formula One car each year. And the reason we produce a brand new Formula One car each year is that the regulations change. So any of your listeners who work in fields where compliance and regulation is extremely important, well, Formula One is highly regulated. And because our regulatory framework changes every year, we have to create a new product uh, within that, that, that set of regulations. And you mentioned the sense of urgency. Well, let me give you an insight on that sense of urgency. Uh, you're quite right. We have the deadlines of 22 Formula One races. And one of the things that I often say to audiences that I'm speaking to is, you know, think about deadlines that your business has had to meet. And think about the number of times maybe there's a little bit of slippage, um, you know, project ends up overrunning, a little bit of time, a little bit on budget. Well, in Formula One, we can't have that. There's no point in turning up at Austin in Texas um, at the uh, Circuit of the Americas on the Monday with the best Formula One car the world has ever seen. The race was on Sunday at 2 p.m. So we worked to 22 non-negotiable deadlines in terms of the races. But then we also have the added urgency that during those winter months, we have to finalize the manufacturing of our new product for the following season. And we have about a six-month window to create that new product and bring it to market. And what that means is that for our 1,000 employees and for our 200 suppliers and contractors, so supply chain is critical for us as with any business, everyone has to be on board with the plan. And what we really require is a culture around using that urgency to to drive the deadlines, to make sure that we never sit in a meeting where someone says, oh, well, I knew that was going wrong two weeks ago, because two weeks ago is ancient history to us. If something is going off plan, we need to know today. So there is a, there is a real emphasis on having a culture where problems are escalated uh, with a sense of urgency. And it's a kind of a maybe slightly unusual environment where we want people to come into our office and say, listen, I made a mistake today. Well, you know, we got a problem or we, we made a, we had an incorrect assumption in our planning and here's the problem because we would rather know because then we can do something about it. It's much too late. Uh, later on. So that sense of urgency becomes something that we use to to strengthen our culture and for everyone to understand that, you know, for the plan to be delivered, we need everyone to, to, you know, walk the walk as well as talking the talk. So the idea, first off, I just have to kind of reiterate the idea that I have a business where there are 22 critical, mission critical, do or die deadlines in a six month period. Just think about that. Your main product, 22 deadlines, and then we're going to start all over with a brand new product, in effect, and that you have to meet every deadline spot on. You don't have a minute extra time. You can't go over by a minute. That's incredible. 
But then you tell me that you have a culture where people are going to come in and say, um, I'm sorry I made a mistake. There's a wrong assumption. I have this problem. And it isn't necessarily that they follow the old adage of I have a problem and here's the solution. You don't want to wait for that. Am I right? Yeah, because we, I think if we, I know we're going to talk about leadership during our conversation, Wanda, and one of the responsibilities of leaders in Formula One is to create an environment where we want to mentor and support as well as empower our employees. So if we have someone who comes to us with a problem but not the answer, that's fine because part of our responsibility is to help them with uh, the answer. We we want to uh, create an environment where we're going to help and support people who need more help and support. So it may be a resource issue. So maybe we didn't allocate sufficient resources for that person or for their department uh, as part of the planning uh, process. Maybe there was some other issue that that we are to blame with. But but the blame word is such an interesting one because we we don't want to blame an individual. If we win as a team and we lose as a team, and if someone in our team is struggling, that's a problem for the whole team. And so, therefore, we want to support them. We want to find out why did we have this issue in the first place? What's our learning from it so that we don't repeat this error? And, and then how do we fix it with that sense of urgency uh, that you mentioned? So we're looking for a, a kind of an upwards trajectory of constant learning and improvement. And, uh, you know, for any listeners who maybe studied Kaizen or Six Sigma, you know, we Formula One is kind of supercharged continuous improvement. We, we, we literally spend every waking hour of the day figuring out how can we optimize for the future and what can we learn from our past mistakes. And I think one of the, one of the most powerful phrases that, that I've used and I've learned during my career in Formula One is that, you know, failure can be used to fuel future success. So every failure is a learning opportunity and it becomes a fuel to supercharge your business in becoming more successful in the future. So every miss enables you to generate a future hit. It's a lovely way of thinking about it. I'm still stuck on this whole notion of culture, on how do you create a culture that says it's okay to raise problems and you're not going to get hit from it. So first off, how do I get people comfortable that you're not going to yell at me or scream at me or do something horrible if I raise an issue, if I say I don't believe this or this isn't working or we got a wrong assumption, and not get defensive about that? What's the secret sauce that makes that happen? So the secret really is is transparency from the get-go. When we employ people in Formula One, they and I'm talking about in a competitive team, when you have a competitive team in Formula One, your employees, your new recruits quickly see that there are a set of values and behaviors that are practiced every day. And one of those is that, you know, problems are shared. Uh, just as our successes are shared. So when the driver wins a Formula One race, you know, the driver's on the top step of the podium with the trophy and the champagne, and it looks great. But the very first thing a Formula One driver does when they win is to thank the whole team because that driver knows the only reason he's won the race is a 1,000 people and 200 suppliers gave them the best product in the world that day. So we have this recognition that is shared across the whole team. The flip side of that is that when we have a failure, it is shared across the whole team. And so, for example, a very common uh, approach in Formula One is that we have morning and evening briefing meetings uh, and debriefs. Um, so before we go into battle, 
we have a meeting with all the key stakeholders around the table and everyone outlines their contribution to the plan. And at the end of the day, we have the mirror opposite meeting where we review how the day went against that plan. So if you sit in the meeting at 8 a.m. in the morning and say, you know, here's our new software, which we've developed for this race, and it's going to do X, Y, Z, and then you have a software problem that afternoon and the car fails, you know that when you go into that meeting in the evening, you're going to be first up <laughs> because yeah. you're, going to have to, you're going to have to say, well, actually, yeah, actually we, we, yeah, we had a problem. We thought the software had been validated for the following things, and actually there's been a miss. And... Um, you know, we're, we're undertaking the investigation in real time. And, and, but it's not because you're going to be blamed. It's just that the team are looking to you. They're saying, you are the person with the answers to our current issue. And today it might be you, the software engineer. Tomorrow it might be the girl who is responsible for race strategy. The next guy could be the guy who's responsible for the tires. Everyone's going to have challenges during their job. But part of the high-performance culture is that everyone not only gets recognition, but everyone also is fully accountable. And that accountability cannot be shied away from. If you are employed in a Formula One team to do a job, whether it is sweeping the floor, driving the hospitality bus, or driving the car, or deciding race strategy using data analytics, you're paid to do that job. And if your aspect of the job falls over, you know that you're going to be held accountable for it. But that's fine, because anyone who wants to be the best in the world also wants to be able to accept being scrutinized. You know, you cannot be the best in the world by hiding. You can only be the best in the world by being upfront about how good you are and also living your failures real time as well. So it's, it's not a, you know, at times it's not fun because it means you have to be willing to accept a level of scrutiny that could make some folks uncomfortable. But given that we recruit the best people we can possibly get our hands on, the reality is that you know people love coming and working in this environment because we give them the opportunity to be the best version of themselves. And that's the kind of powerful culture we want to create where everyone is contributing, everyone is accountable, and everyone's delivering for the team's overall benefit. So, Mark, one of the things that fascinates me about the sports world in general and people who are at the top of their game performing their best, and I think it's pretty true across any sport where you're performing at your best, you just said it as well in Formula One, is that there's this hunger, desire for constant feedback and an appreciation of the failures, Okay, so if I'm out performing on a team, I'm going to get tons of data back from the car, from my performance as a driver, from performance as an engineer, a whole bunch of data back. And analyze that data. It's true if I'm running a race as just a physical person running a marathon. I'm going to get data back. And um, that mm. it's two things. It's willingness to recognize you don't win everything. And then two, mm. look at the feedback in a real way. When I look at businesses, A, we don't give adequate, transparent, decent feedback. Usually it's all messy and people shy away from it. They're afraid of it. I don't know how we get better if we don't do that stuff. Yeah, um, you know, this is music to my ears talking about this kind of topic, uh, Wanda, because I, having worked in Formula One and then met people who are are brilliant at other sports. I mean, I spent uh, 
a morning with Hussein Bolt um, two years ago, and we ended up having, it was me and a Formula One driver and Hussein Bolt talking about performance. And it, when you talk to people who are world-class athletes, you realize we all share very similar attributes in our approach to things. And you're so right about the way businesses very often shy away from the truths which could unlock real performance from them. So let's talk about data. So one of the things which is interesting is about 15, 20 years ago, I started being asked to speak to companies about big data. How does Formula One use big data? Uh, Our cars have about 400 sensors on them. They monitor every aspect of vehicle performance. Every system on the vehicle is being monitored real time. We have a I mean, we have a mission control. We have a, like a Houston-like mission control back at base with people monitoring our cars' data real-time on the other side of the world uh, during a race. So, you know, it's a data-driven environment. But one of the things that we learned very early on about big data is that most of it is not that interesting. I mean, and I think a lot of companies get a lot of information and they spend a lot of time crunching it. And the reality is that in in a sports environment, you actually only really want the data that tells you something useful. And the data that tells you something useful is usually the data that either tells you where you're doing terribly well or where you're doing terribly badly. So we want to focus on the real wins and the real losses. And when we get you know, when you look at the development of data analytics software in Formula One, you find that actually over time, what we've become obsessed with are the anomalies. It's the failures. It's the systems that go outside their design configuration. It's the thing that the driver does while driving the car that the engineers really don't want the driver to do while driving the car. It's all that stuff that's messy. And we've got to focus on that. And I think businesses need to focus on the messy stuff. It's a, it's a thing that doesn't deliver for the customer. It's a thing that compromises your supply chain. It's a thing, it's a system that ultimately, when you look at it, helps you to fail as a business in the areas that you, that, that you feel weak in. So it's that scrutiny, that level of focus on the weaknesses that I think is a tough bridge to cross. It's a tough to get to the point where you spend so much time looking at your weaknesses. But there's where the there's where the happy times are because, you know, there's so many awful expressions in business, but there is low-hanging fruit to be had in the world of, of where you're weak because if you're honest about it, you're transparent about it with yourself, with your employees, with your contractors, you know, you can suddenly find yourself making really big strides. Yeah. It's interesting to me, if you look at, if I look at any of my clients and I look at their data where they're not performing, where there was a break with a client, whether uh, something just didn't deliver as expected, whatever that was about, how quickly people work to sweep that under the carpet and to discount it, as opposed to what you're describing in the Formula One world. We want to raise that, flag that, analyze that, talk about it in a public way, almost um, make it a grand thing in ways, because that's the learning point. You're 100% correct, uh, Wanda. It's it's about changing the mentality around where you're at as a business. And it's so interesting to hear you describe, uh, you know, what, what people can do in terms of brushing things under the carpet. Because ultimately what I have realized, and it's so much of what ultimately made me decide to write a book back in 2014, is that in our industry, like so many industries, people spend a huge amount of time talking about the technology 
about the compliance, about the regulation, about the complexity, about all that, all that kind of stuff. And they don't spend enough time talking about the human side. And actually, when you analyze it, every single Formula One team has amazing technology, resources. Every Formula One team deals with complexity. And yet, there are only one or two that actually win. So what's different about the winners? Well, the difference with the winners is that they've got all of that. They say, well, the technology and the complexities are given. I mean, that's what we do. What we do is complex. We use technology within our industry. So that's a given. The thing that's not a given is that you get a thousand people to work together in a brilliant way. Because if you allow people to develop the wrong set of behaviors, if, for example, you have, even if you have a department where there's a blame culture, if you have one departmental head who runs their unit with a command and control culture where everyone's frightened to put their head above the parapet, where people are not willing to come and admit their issues, what people will do is they will spend all their time trying to hide the mistakes, keep their head down, and go for compromise. And compromise at departmental level, then that spreads across the organization. You end up compromised everywhere. And that is, that's why that, it's the people factor that time and again keeps coming to the surface. And, you know, there's the old adage, um, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Well, I can tell you in Formula One, culture eats absolutely everything for breakfast because when you see the winning teams, you don't have to look too far to find the right culture and to find happy people used to working together in a way where they are the best of themselves and under intense scrutiny to perform. But they love it because they're performing out of their skins as a team and they know they're in a good place. And so it's getting that culture shift. It's getting leaders to realize that command and control and fear have no place in a high-performance culture. It's got to be empowerment. It's got to be coaching. It's got to be creating an environment where people leap out of bed in the morning thinking, if I go to work today, I'm going to make a difference. And that there is the key to success in Formula One. Yeah, music to my ears, because I think that's the case. I think for all of my businesses, the strategies all kind of look the same within the industry. I don't think they're all that dramatically different. But the delivery against that strategy is really the stuff that we're talking about right now, having 100% people on board, moving, acting. And I love your statement that if one part compromises, there goes your performance. It spreads to compromise throughout, and you're not going to win. You're not winning in that way. All right, but now what fascinates me, Mark, is what is it that the leaders do that creates this culture where it's okay, Mm. where we get rid of the command and control and where we really truly make it okay for people to live through the scrutiny? Very interesting journey, I would say, that I've witnessed in Formula One because we definitely came from a time of command and control. If you go back to the 70s and 80s, I started working in Formula One in the 1980s, and the teams were run by a team boss who was the chief executive, and typically they owned all the equity in the team. It was their their team, their business, and uh, they told folks what to do, and, and that was the way it, it used to be run. But we now look back and realize those were the bad old days when failure was persistent and we, did, we got a lot of things wrong. We managed the risks in the sport very badly. We had lots of fatal accidents. We managed performance very badly. There was very poor reliability in our technology. And then you fast forward to today and you realize in 2020 we 
we manage risk brilliantly. We have outstanding performance. We have durability. We have reliability in our systems. And you realize that that has all come from the human factor. The technology has been an enabler. And for leaders, therefore, they've changed. And so the leader in Formula One today, if you take a guy, I'm going to pick on the chief executive of the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team, which they've been dominant in Formula One in recent years and, and look like doing so again this year. So he's an Austrian gentleman by the name of Toto Wolf. And Toto's quite a young guy, he's in his 40s, uh, came through uh, a financial um, sort of industry background to begin with, passionate about racing. And the culture that Toto created at Mercedes-Benz Formula One is one where they have a town hall meeting every week. Um, attendance at those town hall meetings is, is mandatory. The drivers very often attend the town hall meetings. So world champion Lewis Hamilton will stand up in the town hall meeting in front of his co-workers and they'll talk about their successes and their failures. And sometimes it's Lewis Hamilton, the, the driver, who's, who's made an error in the previous race. And he will stand up and say, sorry, I let you folks down on Sunday. Uh, you know, it's my fault and I'm going to learn from that. That mistake. So Toto has a culture of, of transparency, of communication, of sharing uh, information. A very, very here's a very pragmatic step that he took early on. Uh, when Mercedes-Benz win a Formula One race, the driver, of course, has to go on the podium to, to, to secure the driver's trophy for winning. But traditionally, when the team wins a race, not only does the driver get a trophy, but usually the team boss goes on the podium as well, and they receive the trophy for the team winning the race. So Toto Wolff decided way back in, I think it was 2013, that he wouldn't do that, and he would nominate at random a member of the team to take the trophy. And I remember very well uh, a lady who I, 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 she's an acquaintance of mine, I don't know her terribly well, but I remember she was head of marketing, and she was completely out of the blue. She was told, uh, by the way, you're, you're getting the trophy on the podium today. You do such a great job for our team, and we want you to, to be seen on you know, TV around the world getting the trophy. And she couldn't believe it. So she went up the steps onto the podium, and she took the trophy. And since then, they have maintained that. And it's been much commented on up and down the Formula One world, to the point where the rest of the Formula One teams now copy that. Because it's a very powerful message. It means that the leader is saying, our success is not about me. Our success about, is about you as a team. It's about every individual. It's not about me. It's not about I. It's about we. It's about us. And that's very, very powerful. And I think the, in creating that culture of communication, of discussion, of openness, and of saying, we're going to share our failures and we're going to celebrate our successes together. And what, you know, really having practical ways of doing that, it, it, it becomes, um, it, it, you know, it, it, it becomes shared across the organization. It means a new recruit. People actually want to go to work there. I mean, that becomes another thing. It, beca- it helps you to fill your pipeline with talent because word soon gets out. This is a great place to work. You get recognized here for doing uh, a great job. You work for someone who really values your contribution. It's not about him. It's about us. And, uh, and so it becomes a, a kind of an upward directory for everyone. That's an interesting comment. I made an observation this past week with a group that I was doing a webinar with about resilience. And one of the comments about resilience is, you know, you find things that are precious to you and how you share them. 
and how do you create a culture where I'm sharing what is valuable to me more broadly to you? There's a longer story with how that connects to resilience, but what you're saying is that trophy, that opportunity to be on the podium is a precious moment. And by sharing that broadly within the team, that's taking something that's unique to you, valuable to you and distributing it out. And boy, does it have a powerful message. Um, I think it's huge lessons in that one. Mark, this is a a perfect place to take a pause. So we're going to take a break. We'll be right back to continue this discussion about top performing teams and about change. My guest today is Mark Gallagher. His business is called Performance Insights Companies. The book, if you're interested, The Business of Winning, Strategic Success from Formula One Track to the Boardroom. And we'll be right back. it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Mark Gallagher, and Mark has held a number of senior roles in Formula One motor racing for over 30 years, working with some very winning teams and some top world champion drivers. I didn't say, but one of the interesting things about Mark is that he was a motorsport consultant to Disney Pixar on Cars and Cars 2. If you happen to be a fan, I hope you recognize his impact. So we have just been talking about what it takes to win in uh, Formula One racing. And the first thing I'm going to comment is the sense of urgency is incredible to me in that you produce a brand new product technology every year. And then you're going to meet 22 deadlines with no slippage, not a day, not a minute, not five minutes off the deadline ready to go. And that the winning teams are not the ones around the technology. The winning teams are the ones that look at the data that has the biggest impact. And the data has the biggest impact or data where either you're performing incredibly well or you're not performing as you expected. So it's that focus on the what's not working as we planned and having a culture bit around that that makes all the difference in the world. 
I could go on, but it's, uh, it is about the culture at the end of the day. Now, Mark, you've worked for a number of different leaders in um, Formula One. Are they all like the Mercedes guy, Toto, that you described, or have there been ones that have a different style, and has, how has that worked out? Well, during the course of my career, I've been, first of all, very privileged to work with lots of very talented and successful people. If you if you take the Jordan Formula One team, which I was on the management board of, that was a startup. I joined that as a startup. There were 33 of us uh, on the payroll at the beginning back in 1990. And actually, our very first Formula One race was the United States Grand Prix in 1991 in Phoenix in Arizona. And, um, and I was with that team from startup right through to when we were winning Formula One races and then right through till pretty well when the team was sold uh, on. And um, and Eddie Jordan was the entrepreneur behind that team. And I'm sure Eddie wouldn't mind me saying if he was on the call with us that, you know, his style of leadership was, it was quite uh, centered around him. I mean, he, it was his name that was over the door of the business. It was Eddie Jordan's team and he was the chief executive. And Eddie's style of management was, very much geared towards command and control. There were things that he wanted done and he wanted them done in a certain way and by a certain time. And and so there was, there would have been less of the, the kind of total wolf approach to uh, a shared sense of ownership. And certainly the empowerment was, it was there, but it was there in a way where you were being empowered by him to do what he wanted by a certain date or a certain time. So I enjoyed working for Eddie However, I began to realize as time went on that he wasn't giving me or my colleagues a freedom to be the best version of ourselves. There was so much more that we as an organization could have become. And actually, when I look back to then the fact that he sold the company, uh, there was a kind of general feeling that under its, under its structure and under its leadership, it had explored all that it could in the way in which it was run and led and managed. So in in other words, it reached its own ceiling. And there was no need for that ceiling to be there. There was an opportunity for that business to go on and grow much further. And, and you know, for me, it became a really interesting lesson that that businesses actually become self-fulfilling in their own limitation uh, as much as businesses have the potential to open the ceiling up and to go on to greater things. So when your business is, is being limited, it can be so tempting to, to blame the market or to blame, I don't know, your suppliers or to blame the fact that your product's not as good. Or what, But actually looking in the mirror is a really important starting point to say, am I as a leader actually limiting my own business? And, and so I think uh, creating the potential in the business is so uh, sorry, unleashing the potential in the business is so much part of what a leadership uh, needs to think about doing. And, and I certainly learned that during my time with Eddie. We had a great time, by the way, but it, it was from a business kind of learning perspective, uh, it wasn't all you know, perfect. So we, we, we learned a lot from that. And when I look at Total Wolf today, or I look at my former team, Red Bull Racing under Christian Horner, I'm very pleased to say that people like Christian and Toto are very much at the enlightened style of leader that, that we're talking about. They understand the power of one. They understand the power of the team. And they understand how unlocking the culture, uh, in enabling people to be the best version of themselves is such, is so pivotal. To, uh, to creating the opportunity for everyone to really deliver for you. Yeah. 
this is music to my ears, um, and I think we d- don't talk about command and control in the right way because all the management books, all the leadership books will say command and control is awful. So therefore, no leader will say, I operate in a command and control structure. Because most people have in their mind that command and control means do exactly what I said, when I said, how I said it, and don't deviate in any way. And you're not talking about authoritarianism. Instead, the more modern version of command and control is I know more, and therefore I know the better plan. And I need to make sure that people are doing what they need to be doing so that things are controlled on my watch and controlled for good outcome. That is still the version of command and control, as you just outlined with Eddie Jordan. It's not that he's a dictator and obnoxious because you had fun working for him. It's that he had his own particular view of how he wanted things done, and he held that view tightly, and you had to meet that view or not fit. In contrast to what you're describing in the current leaders is that it's a completely different process that there's much more fluidity on what it means and where the ideas come from and how we go about achieving real success and therefore a different form of control. Yeah, um, completely. I mean, that's a great, that's a great summary, Wanda. And let me talk about another individual okay. who's a real achiever in our business. Uh, his name is Adrian Newey. He is the technical director of the Red Bull Racing Formula One team, which won four consecutive world championships. And before he was at Red Bull, he was with the McLaren organization. He won world championships with McLaren. When I say he won them, his his car designs won those world championships. And before that, he was with the Williams Formula One team, and he won world championships with them as well. So here's a guy who is the preeminent technical director or Chief Technical Officer in Formula One. Now, he wrote a book uh, last year. It's, uh, it's not got a very inspiring title. It's uh, probably typical of Adrian. It's called How to Build a Car. Uh, but when he talks about how to build a car, he's talking about how to design state-of-the-art world championship winning Formula One cars. So it's a very underplayed uh, title. But in his book, what's really striking is how he talks about the fact that, yes, he is a a great car designer, but he sees his role as simply getting his design team and saying, here's the general direction we want to go in. You know, here's our goal. We want the car to be this much quicker this year. Here are the compliance and regulations which we need to think about this year. And here's where I think, you know, we need to explore in terms of performance. And he then sits back and waits for people to come and challenge him. And he said, you know, if someone comes in and says, Adrian, you know, we're going down the wrong path here, we, because I've looked at this and this is my area of expertise and I really believe this is a cul-de-sac, you know, we've got a blockage here. He will take that on board and he won't take it on board and then ignore it. He'll take it on board and say, okay, let's change direction. So in his book, the whole way through, I kept thinking how interesting it was that so many of the innovations for which the media give him credit, he was at pains to point out that those innovations came from people within his team because he created the right environment, the environment within which he could be challenged. And and he loved being challenged because as an engineer, and he's a very pure engineer, is Adrian, as an engineer, he just wants the best engineering outcome. And he's the first one to realize that he is not going to have every idea in the world. That's why he employs people and he wants to employ the brightest people who bring the best ideas. And he's in listening mode 
all the time. That's incredible. Listening mode all the time. Great. That is a perfect example. And if I think about taking that back to any number of my clients, whether you're running a small business, a business within a big business, or even a big business, that notion of what, how do you give the goals, the direction, the kind of focus, if you will, some clarity on what we're going to do and not to do, and then sit back and wait for people to challenge your idea, your approach, your insight, or anything of that, but let them genuinely challenge it as opposed to you sit there to defend it. Easier said than done. Okay, Mark, I can't miss, I'm going to shift gears on you because we could talk all day about the teams and about the leaders who've done that. And that's hugely important, but there's another story about formula one that I think is fascinating. And that's this notion that the business model for formula one has changed dramatically from the beginning. You already mentioned the notion that it's not just about sponsorships it's about much more um, that where you make your money. So give me a little bit of example about how Formula One has changed. And then what I want to know is, how did you get the teams to change with it? How did you get everybody on board? So I'm going to start by answering the last bit first, if you don't mind, Wanda. Please. And say that it, it becomes incredibly easy to get people to change when survival is at stake. And sur- survival, um, you know, of the most critical kind when the business you know when you're literally literally sitting in your office thinking what are we all going to be doing in a year's time you know that all that really focuses the mind and when i speak at conferences in different parts of the world one thing that comes you know there are lots of words that get mentioned during briefing calls and um disruption you know the d word gets mentioned so much so many companies say to me oh you know we're going through a period of change there's disruptions new players in the market so let me the, the formula 1 story is interesting in that regard so um Wanda, i'm sure you, i'm sure a lot of the listeners will remember um the dot com bubble you know around mm-hmm. about the turn of the century uh big technology companies hit the wall all kinds of terrible things were happening so if if i was to share with you that um Two of the very biggest sponsors in Formula One at that time were two Canadian companies, Lucent Technologies and Nortel uh-huh. Networks, and, um, and and they disappeared like over like pretty well overnight. They were gone, and these were companies that were putting millions of dollars into Formula One auto racing because they were promoting their technologies and their brands. and And I remember that happening, and I remember thinking our industry is being hit because of something that's happening particularly in North America in the technology sector. And, and there was kind of an interesting awakening that our sport of Formula One was now was not as resilient as we thought. And we were pretty relaxed about it because most of our customers were very loyal and most of our income was from a sector of sponsorship, which was tobacco sponsorship. And mm-hmm. pretty well every Formula One team had a big tobacco sponsor. Uh, Philip Morris and uh, R.J. Reynolds and all these big tobacco companies were funding or indeed owning Formula One teams. And then we wake up one morning in 2002 and we read in the business press that tobacco sponsorship and advertising is going to be banned. And it's going to be banned in three years' time. And I, I do remember that. That was definitely a moment when I remember sitting in my office thinking, we've just lost 70% of our revenue. Where the heck are we going to get that back from? 
and it was interesting to be in the industry and then witness everyone thrashing around trying to protect that business model based on sponsorship, looking for who's going to replace tobacco with sponsorship. And for a short period of time, everyone thought they'd found the new kind of theme of gold, and that was the banking community. So we ended up with a whole bunch of banks coming into Formula One, auto racing, HSBC and Santander and Royal Bank of Scotland and, uh, you know, you name it, they were in at Credit Suisse and... And then, of course, the financial crisis hit. And so what I've painted there is that in in an eight-year period, we saw the technology sponsors go, we saw the tobacco sponsors go, and we saw the financial services sponsors go. And none of them were replaceable. And actually, in the 12 years since, they have not been replaced. So sponsorship as a source of revenue for Formula One has diminished exponentially and is not ever going to come back to the levels that it enjoyed in the latter part of the 20th century. So to replace those revenues, we've had to think differently. Where do we add value as businesses? Who are our customers? Are our customers tobacco companies that sponsor us? And actually, the answer was staring us in the face. Because, Wanda, you and I just spent the beginning of the show talking about the fact that a Formula One team is a technology company. And we create cool technologies from automotive technology, from aerospace, and from information technology. So we deal in aerospace, material science, we deal in aeronautical engineering, we deal in high-performance automotive engineering, and we certainly deal in data-driven outcomes. So really what we've seen over the last 15 years is an explosion in Formula One teams packaging their capabilities for industry and selling technology products and services into industry. And so suddenly we're selling technology goods and services into healthcare, into defense, into uh, the aerospace sector, uh, into into pharmaceuticals, can you believe, uh, into trans- transport systems. I mean, you name it. There are so many great case studies that I could share with you. And that has all come from the fact that the leaders in Formula One faced with an existential crisis, had to effectively take a step back and say, are we even selling the right thing here? Are we actually are we actually playing to our real strengths? Because our real strengths was not in promoting tobacco companies or putting corporate brands on our cars. Our real strength was in our engineering capability. And that is so much more sustainable as a business model, particularly given that we can rapidly prototype cool engineering solutions in a fraction of the time that it takes wider industry. And so that's been, for me, a very exciting decade to live through so that today in 2020, Formula One teams are doing much cooler things for a broader range of customers and doing so in a truly sustainable and, I may say, from a corporate governance point of view and a social responsibility point of view, a much, much better place to be in. That sound, it also makes it sound like such an exciting industry because that means you're at the forefront of all sorts of interesting things. So it's not just about the car and just about racing. It's got a lot more going on it. And I can imagine, you know, if you're into engineering or data tech or any of those, that this could be, you never would have thought this would be a great place to work. I could see it could be a great place to work. Yeah, and I think, you know, a point that um, I often mention is that, you know, sometimes folks say to me, well, you know, do your staff appreciate being put on a project for 
I don't know, de- de- delivering energy efficiency solutions for a supermarket or do your staff appreciate being put on a project to work with a, a company producing military equipment? You know, would they not prefer to be working on the cool race car stuff? And actually the truthful answer to that is that our staff all go through different career phases. And in many cases, staff could get burned out doing Formula One and they would actually leave the industry. We are now able to offer staff a much more... Uh, coherent career uh, plan where they can they can work in the racing side and then they can go and work in some of the great customer programs or vice versa. They can come in and work on a customer program and end up working on the racing side because essentially where I see Formula One today increasingly is that the racing that we do on a Sunday, that the cool stuff that we do racing in a, in a Formula One event is in effect the shop window. It's the showcase for our technological capabilities that we sell to customers Monday to Friday. And so I think for all of our employees who are reaping the benefits of having well-paid careers in a very fast-moving technology sector, I think the benefits are far, far outweigh any of the pain that we went through through these changes. It's fascinating. Mark, absolutely fascinating industry. Almost make me want to go and work for it because I think it'd be so fascinating. All right, I'm going to give you one minute to answer my new absolute favorite question. This is terribly unfair. But as the title of the show is Out of the Comfort Zone, what was the secret for you for getting out of your comfort zone sometime in your life? No question about it. From a leadership point of view, uh, I went right outside my comfort zone when I asked my own staff to, uh, to tell me about me. And we did a 360-degree review, and I learned things from my staff about me that I didn't know. And it was very earnest and very honest, and it changed me because I thought I was a great leader, and it turned out that I was just a good leader and that I had a number of, you know, I had a number of failures in terms of how I dealt with people and just all kinds of, some things were very small, some things were larger and it changed me because it, it enabled me at the age of about 40 to reappraise myself as a leader. And I don't mind saying, I think the day after I finished that whole process, I came into work quite a renewed person because I now knew that I had a set of new targets for me as a a leader to meet in order for my people to really, you know, have the best environment within which to work. So that was right outside of my comfort zone, but I'm so delighted that I did it. And I think every leader should be asking their people to appraise them. Absolutely fabulous. Mark, what an inspiring show. My guest today is Mark Gallagher. The book, if you want to read more about it, is The Business of Winning, Strategic Success from the Formula One Track to the Boardroom. Um, And Mark, it's been a pleasure having you as a guest. And it's been a delight for me to thank you so much, Wanda, for your time. I just love the examples about what it takes to really create that high-performance culture and the focus on the transparency and the where we make our mistakes. We win together and we fail together. Join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.